Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Healthy Chat. I am Amy Braun, President and CEO of HealthCore. Since its founding in 2003, HealthCore has addressed health inequities in at-risk communities by educating and empowering teens, encouraging them to become change agents within their family, their school, and their community. Today, we will be discussing the importance of diversity in medicine, specifically as it relates to inequity in healthcare for Black Americans and practices that can be taken to bridge that healthcare divide in community of colors. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Minority Health, Black women have the highest rates of obesity or being overweight compared to other groups in the United States. About four out of five Black women are overweight or obese. Although Black adults are 40% more likely to have high blood pressure, they are less likely than their non-Hispanic white counterparts to have their blood pressure under control. And they face significant barriers to securing the health care they need. Last fall, the Survey on Race and Health, a joint project between KFF and ESPN, The Undefeated, explored the public's views and experiences on the topics of healthcare, racial discrimination, and the coronavirus pandemic, with a special focus on Black adults, a group that has borne a disproportionate burden of COVID-19 cases and deaths. That survey found that 7 in 10 Black Americans believe that people are treated unfairly based on race or ethnicity when they seek medical care. And while Black Americans have been contracting the coronavirus, getting severely ill and dying from it at a higher rate than other racial and ethnic groups in the U.S., Black Americans are also less likely to want to get the COVID-19 vaccine, according to polls. A December survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation found that around 35% of Black adults are not planning to get COVID-19 vaccines. Clearly, this is a very large issue that we are faced with as a nation. With me today are two healthcare activists who are working to address these inequities and are truly the future of medicine. I feel so honored to have them here with us today. Jasmine Jackson is a former health corps coordinator at the Ginn Academy in Cleveland, Ohio. She received her medical degree and her MBA from the University of Michigan, where she also served as president of the Black Medical Association, which focuses on healthcare disparities, education activism, and mentorship. Jasmine is currently a pediatric resident at Boston's Children's Hospital and Boston Medical Center. Welcome, Jasmine. Thank you so much, Amy. Also with us today is Jamil Lacey. He is the winner of the second Health Corps Diversity in Medicine Scholarship Award. Jamil is a graduate of Morehouse College, the London School of Economics, the Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science, and is currently enrolled in medical school at UCLA. Jamil is also the founder of Trap Medicine, an incredible, incredible program we will be talking about more in a little bit. Welcome, Jamil. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Jasmine, welcome back to Health Corps. And Jamil, again, congratulations. HealthCorp's mission and the steps that we've been taking since our inception is to combat inequity in healthcare. To that point, 55% of our coordinators have gone into medical or health professions. And while not all of our coordinators are of color, many have worked with communities of color with a goal of working with the community members. It's important, and I think we'll talk about it more, but working with the community members, faculty, staff, students, to change the culture of health and wellness where they serve. So for our coordinators and our alumni joining us today via YouTube Live, welcome. We're very excited to have us here. We're very excited to be honoring two incredible individuals. I'd love to start our conversation off with a couple of very basic questions, but my guess is they're going to lead less than basic answers. So Jasmine, I'll turn to you first. What was your path to medicine? And I, I believe you know, you're focused in pediatrics now, but what is kind of your, if there's any additional focus that you have? 
Definitely. So um, I did not grow up thinking about becoming a doctor um, in any way, shape or form. Uh, at the time, I remember back in middle school, high school, I was really focused on basketball. Um, I thought, oh, if, you know, going to college for basketball doesn't work out, then probably sports, uh, not even sports medicine, probably like a sports agent or something along those lines. And it was really um, in college when I started uh, to really think about, you know, what am I seeing around me um, and growing up in the metro Detroit area uh, and, and seeing the, the vast disparities that occur um, both along lines of health, um, but then, of course, social economics and having a friend um, who got cancer, uh, was, was diagnosed with lymphoma and seeing the way that doctors cared for her um, and saved her life. And she, she's fine. She lives in Atlanta. She's doing her thing. Uh, no problems there. But seeing like the impact that you can have both on the individual level, but then also think about these structural inequities and in, in making a impact there. So that led me to, to medicine and exploring that throughout, throughout college. And my focus um, right now is, is within pediatrics and pediatrics was a it was the easy decision for me after doing health core and being involved in mentoring. And uh, my first job was as a camp counselor and just seeing the, the hope that working with kids generates and the innovation that can occur when you partner um, with kids and their families and thus their communities. And so within pediatrics, I'm really interested in seeing, you know, how do we make sustainable change and innovation within the social determinants of, of health. And so getting, beyond just exploring what those differences are and what those root causes are, but then enacting change that uh, can withstand um, different sources of funding and be actually ingrained in even healthcare operations. Wow. I, I love that. Absolutely. And I think as before you and I were chatting before we started the podcast, social determinants of health is very much a focus of health core and, and figuring out from the community level, how we provide and, and break down some of those barriers. And I think also make it make, um, you know, it become more aware to everybody as well. Um, what some of those barriers may be. Jamil, what about you? What was your path to medicine like, and maybe where you're planning to focus? Yeah, similar to Jasmine, um, I had no plans of going into medicine at all. I grew up uh, in, in East Oakland, California, and uh, between East Oakland and, and Tracy, California, which is in the Central Valley. And uh, when I came you know, and went to college, I wanted to be an urban planner. So all of my energy was into like building things and designing things and trying to uh, really um, take my creative abilities, I guess, and, art, art, and artistic mind and to apply it to my community and I wanted to see um, I didn't realize that what I really wanted to see in wanting to become an urban planner was transformation and change in my community uh, and I got an opportunity to work in urban planning right after college I went to Morehouse uh, for undergrad and uh, worked under Mayor M Michael Bloomberg at the time uh, in New York City and worked on a lot of different uh, urban planning uh, projects that look specifically at real estate development and redevelopment and realized that the field of urban planning was very much so about transforming spaces, but not really um, helping support the, 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 the development and support of, of people and communities. And so 
I wanted to um, focus more specifically on how I could improve a lot of the conditions that were in communities such as, you know, um, the South Bronx, um, Flatbush, Brooklyn. And so I actually wanted to um, to, to not just focus on real estate development and, and streetscapes, um, but actually like help and support people. And so I decided to to get a, a master's degree in um, social policy and planning. Uh, and did that at the London School of Economics and then circuitously uh, ended up coming back home to the Bay Area and started working for a few organizations doing some violence prevention work and uh, worked at a, at a school-based health clinic where we uh, we helped just support young people and adolescents um, and help them actually create a lot of the health interventions that um, that we were helping to support at the school at the school site at the school level and so when Jasmine talks about like the, the ways that we can address social determinants of health and using innovation it's the school-based health uh, center model that was re- that really kind of catap- catapulted me into medicine and working with um, the nursing team and the social workers and the principal and counselors really helped me to see um, where the gaps were in communities and how young people responded to culture and how they they needed a real support team to to really kind of move past some of the traumas that they were experiencing and some of the like you know normal things that teenagers experience and and um, and the things actually would inhibit their development and also like get in the way of them, like, in, you know, graduating high school. And it was, it was medicine and public health that really kind of like was attractive to me just based on all of these experiences that I had. I knew that I wanted to do something that was working in partnership with communities, working with people, but also being able to just kind of take a step back and um, try to, to uh, impact systems. And so I ended up taking a bunch of like, I didn't, you know, I was heading study science in undergrad, but I ended up uh, taking all of the prerequisite courses um, at a postback program at Drew, uh, Charles Drew University, who I'm so uh, thankful for uh, seeing something in me and, and, and um, accepting me into their school. And so that was sort of, you know, the, the, the bridge that led me to UCLA. So, um, so yeah, what I end up, what I hope to end up doing is to be able to impact um, adolescent men and, and boys, um, and also um, adult men um, and their health. So I started Trap Medicine, which I think we'll probably talk about later, but I'm really interested in, in trying to impact the mental health of men and boys. Wonderful. Well, it's you and it's very, very, very exciting to hear your story. You and I have similar paths across. I don't know exactly when you were in New York, but I was working um, in the Bronx uh, in a school in upper North Bronx area under Michael Bloomberg at the same time, I think maybe when you were around there too. So it was definitely an interesting time to be in schools and and urban planning and some of the interesting policies that were, were getting passed. So, so super cool. And I, I think, you know, you touched on a lot of great points and I just wanted to, I know we didn't share this at the top, but Jasmine and, and Jamil, if you want to ask each other questions, please feel free. This is, you know, definitely a dynamic conversation between the three of us. Um, and I, I welcome, you know, what, however you want to interject and, and please, please feel free. Um, you know, I think you, you talk a lot about the, the culture of health and Jasmine touched on it too, obviously working with health court in the schools. And, you know, I think one of the things that we've noticed is you particularly, um, mentioned boys and I'm going, I'm going to go off script here, but I think it'd be really interesting because 
you know, one of the things that we've noticed at Health Corps is that it is harder to reach our, our men um, and our boys. And, and so that's definitely a place that we're looking at as we look at our program. What do we do? How do we need to attack that differently? And, and Jasmine, you were at an all boys school. Um, so I'm just a little bit curious if you could kind of touch in about maybe some of the lessons that you learned about how to reach adolescent boys. Yeah, definitely. Um, and Jamil, my wife is from Oakland, so <laughs> the connection is there. I think for uh, my experience at Gen Academy, it all came down to relationship building um, and really getting a sense of where where the students I worked with were, were coming from and what interests them as opposed to implementing my own agenda. And I think that's so applicable in many fields, but especially in healthcare, you know, for partnering with communities where if we're really trying to see like what assets are already in a community um, and thinking about, you know, what skills are there and, and going uh, and using those to, to then further um, a mention that is community centric. And so when I was working with the students, I remember my first day, um, I definitely was a fish out of water for sure. Um, but then, you know, just having, it was all relationship building, having one-on-one commun- uh, conversation with students, hearing, you know, what they, what they care about, um, you know, things to like with how they spent their summer, just like really trying to, to dig down uh, into what matters to them and then getting a more sense of, you know, what is their home structure look like? What are things that they want to change in their community? Who are like role models that they look up to? Uh, and there was actually a, I think a, a huge turning point for me was a session that I uh, created because of the flexibility that, that Health Corps allows in which with some of my senior boys, I took people from these conversations of, of folks that they look up to. And so for example, somebody like LeBron James, and this is before, you know, LeBron James uh, created his school, but I went through, you know, the things that he was doing at the time in his community. And then I took somebody like, somebody said they really liked Muhammad Ali. And I was like, well, Muhammad Ali threw his, uh, his medal for, for boxing in the Kentucky River because he has a stance against racism. And so what lessons can we learn and build from these, these idols that, uh, that you can also build yourself, but then relate those to issues that you see in your in your own community and use that as a launch pad um, to then do some of our some of our programming. And so I think it's important to to not come with your own agenda um, and then just to do way more listening than talking. Absolutely. I, I, I love that. I think, and, um, you know, since we do have a lot of alumni on today, you know, one of the new things that Health Corps that we're doing and Jasmine and you and I were talking about this and earlier is that, you know, we really created a new project where, um, as Jasmine so poignantly put it, student-led action, right? It's our new innovation project. And we're really focused on letting the teens decide what is the health issue that is impacting them. And then let's talk about the social determinants of health and why that's an issue and what are the different levers in our community that are in our control, that are not in our control, and how do we start to make change and ultimately create change? But I think what you're hitting on, Jasmine, that's so important is that it has to start with our kids, um, where they are, what they're interested in, what they're invested in, and where they want to see the change and doing it with them as opposed to to them. Um, Jasmine, you recently um, published an incredibly personal and poignant opinion piece um, published in the Journal of American Medical Association Pediatrics entitled The Doctor is Out, Reflections in Being a Black Queer Physician. If you haven't read it, please check it out. It is a beautifully, beautifully written piece. There were many things that struck me in that piece. Um, I want to just touch on one in, in the conversation we're having. You know, when you came out to your mother, 
um, she said that she was scared for your safety. And, and you said to her that your sobering response was that you were more likely to die because of being black than because of being gay. And I'd love if you could just share a little bit about um, that with our listeners as to why you made that statement in the piece. Yeah, so for, for me, um, when I walk into a room, uh, it's obvious that, that I'm black. And um, as someone who did not come out to their family until their mid-20s, uh, I was used to hiding that part of my identity. And so that in being in the closet that offers protection, because then you're not, you're not facing uh, heteronormativity in a way um, that I would face racism. And, you know, when I entered medical school um, was in 2014 um, and right, you know, when uh, Mike Brown was murdered, um, we started the White Coats for Black Lives chapter as a part of a national um, movement. And we, and uh, my team started the chapter at the University of Michigan. And so just with everything that I personally have experienced and even as a first year medical student being uh, detained by police and in the back of a police car in Cleveland when I was actually going to visit family and also see some of my old students, uh, those experiences shape your, your risk profile, right? So for how you maneuver through the world and how racism um, affects how you're able to maneuver safely. And so for me, um, it is it is knowing that, you know, when I step out the out the hospital, uh, I'm viewed differently than my white counterparts and my interactions um, with the criminal justice system um, have proven that I am at risk in a way that I did not face uh, from my sexuality. That makes a lot of sense. Jamil, I see you nodding your head. I don't know if you want to add anything in terms of your own experience or anything that that resonated for you. Uh, I one want to just thank you, Jasmine, for sharing um, that. And I look forward to reading the piece because I feel like it's something that um, I need to hear right now. And just uh, a lot of a lot of people that I think are um, just in the space of trying to like navigate um, this current state of our country um, is just a lot of, a lot of like heartfelt uh, writing, I think is, is necessary and needed right now because I think it connects with, with people's um, just um, own personal experiences. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I mean, I, I totally agree with everything that she said, you know, and the first thing you see when you see me is I'm a black male. So I'm automatically assumed to be either threatening or, um, either coming from committing a crime or going to commit a crime. Um, and that is for me is um, always has put me on, um, on uh, just on notice to just be aware of my surroundings at all times and to be aware of other people and how I, how I am perceived by other people. And so an example of that is like, you know, just a simple example is every time I'm walking on the street, like I, I'm, I hold my keys in my hand just to shake them. So that way, if I'm walking behind somebody, they know that I'm coming. I'm not like um, there's no surprise that I'm by them because I don't want people to react in a way that, you know, well, he might rob me or whatever. And so I'm always just aware of of uh, my surroundings. And I'm, that's I mean, just having to think about that, like most people don't have to think about that. Um but I think about those things and I'm always aware of just like how I'm being perceived. And so, you know, how I 
how I show up in the world is very much so informed by um, how black men are perceived um, and treated in this country. And so, you know, I, when I step out of the out of the out of the house and I go to the store, like I'm making sure that I'm trying to, you know, be as non-threatening or perceived as non-threatening as possible. And so, I've even like developed like this. Uh, it's, 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 it's a it's a protective um, uh, protective behavior, I guess. You know, I'll you know throw on a flannel or a button up just to make sure that I look more professional than if I just had on like a t-shirt and a hoodie or something like that. And so, it's something that I think black men and women are conditioned to 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 do and to behave as, as a way to protect ourselves and a way to make sure that like at the end of the day we can come home you know and i think in this country we've seen over the last you know 10 years at least i think people are much more aware of racism um and how it it manifests in this country and uh you know it's just and what happens in the hospital is just a microcosm of what happens in the world and what we're seeing and I think the videos that we've seen that the, I think that the female doctor or woman doctor who um, unfortunately passed away from COVID um, who was a physician and who was treated really poorly in the hospital. I think that that's just a, a microcosm of what we're seeing in this, in this country. And it's unfortunate that we have to bear the burden of that. But I think that we also are the people who are going to um, be the ones that will be on the, on the forefront of change. And so it's those experiences that I think are, are, are really kind of driving what we're seeing in the, in the streets on the, the, in the Black Lives Matter movement and other social movements that we're seeing. Thank you both for sharing um, your stories. And I, I really appreciate you being open and, and exploring that with us and our listeners. I want to touch on something, Jamil, that you, you brought in, and I'd like to hear from both of you. Um, you know, Jasmine, you wrote a little bit about this in your piece. And, and just for as everyone knows, we will make sure that the piece is linked in the podcast notes and wherever we post this, it will be there. Um, but you talked a little bit about what it's like um, when people see you when you walk into the, um, you know, into the into the different exam rooms or in the hospital or in, in moments. And obviously, you've had to make decisions about when you share um, your sexuality and when you don't. Um, but I, I'm curious if you, if both of you could talk a little bit about maybe what, maybe positive and negative reactions you've received as you walk into um, a hospital room and what that's been like for you. Sure. I mean, I have my, my experience is, is way more limited than Jasmine's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I've done some shadowing in the hospital and I've done some, like, I've worked in the, in the clinical setting. And so I will say <clears throat> that when, when uh, Black patients see me, uh, they are absolutely just they're beaming with joy and pride. And that's something that makes me feel really good, um, obviously. But I also know that that is, a, is connected to like probably their previous experience or past experience of not having seen a Black doctor or a Black nurse um, in that setting. And so I always take that and try to make sure that at every moment um, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing my best, right? I'm, I'm making sure that I'm checking everything. I'm making sure that I'm smiling. And I'm just, that's for me, it's just like, it's a it's a responsibility and an obligation to 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 really um, put a lot of focus and make sure that their experience is positive. So that way, when they leave me, they're not they feel like okay, I can actually like trust this system, right? And so, because that might be the last, the first or the last time they um, experience an interaction with a black medical medical provider. And so, I want to make sure this is a positive experience. So that way they're more likely to to continue to stay engaged with the healthcare system because that's 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 exactly what we're seeing is people people are having poor experiences in the in the healthcare setting and then they're like automatically they're just you know 
disengaging from the system. And that's what we don't want. That's why, that's why we're seeing the disparities that we see. And so uh, it's, it makes me feel really good. Uh, and it gives me a lot of like pride and joy to be able to serve people. And so I, I really am really happy when um, when people see me and they're just like, wait, you're not here to clean up or you're not here to take my food. It's like, no, I'm here to take your vitals. And they're always encouraging and, and, and always telling me to just keep going. We need you. And so it's those experiences that continue to give me inspiration and energy. Yeah, I echo um, everything uh, he said, uh, especially that part about um, really trying to create these positive experiences, right? Because the medical system has not been trustworthy for uh, people of color and specifically for for Black folk. And so how can we make the medical system trustworthy? Um, And so I see my job right now as a a pediatrician um, is to, you know, of course, put my best foot forward always, but in particular, when I step into um, the the hospital, seeing like what what gaps exist. So are we treating families uh, equitably? And um, my experience with uh, one-on-one patient interactions, especially with with Black patients, is I do find that uh, my Black patients will uh, sometimes bring up things that they may not bring up to a another provider that didn't share race concordance with them. I give an example for that. I had a patient that was my very first time meeting them um, and they were there for a physical. And we actually were even speaking through uh, an interpreter um, for this particular black family. And I asked like, you know, is there anything else that you all need from me? Um, you know, I just want to be here to support you all. And the mother paused for a second and I could tell that she was having like, you know, an internal struggle with like, should I say something? Should I not say something? I just reiterated like, you know, seriously, anything like, you know, pandemic times are hard. Um, And you made it to your appointment today. So I want to make sure that you get everything that you need uh, taken care of. And uh, the mother said, you know, well, her daughter has started saying things like black is ugly and I'm not black. And she's picking up on these on these racist cues that are in society as a, as a young person whose mind is a sponge and taking in both the positive and, and the negative um, social emotional milestones that, that she's meeting. And so we were able to have a long conversation um, about blackness and being uh, a, a little black girl who is bold, beautiful. Uh, worthy of love, um, worthy of respect, and get into all that. And then it led to us um, starting a a quality project in which we're looking for books that talk about race to put into our pediatric clinic. Um, Because there's some multicultural books, but not books that specifically address race and how to talk to kids about race. And we know those books exist, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist Baby exists. Uh, and so seeing those one-on-one interactions in, the, in both providing that care, but then also knowing that there's so much work that we can do. And then how does that relate to creating change on a higher level? A hard story to hear, but also thank you for turning it into something you know, actionable and, and really making a change from, from something that you heard. And I, I love that. And you know, we we internally and externally in, at HealthCore have really been talking about the importance of having healthcare providers that look like their patients, as you both have just really talked about, and and that they can empathize with their patients in a, in a different manner, in a different way, and maybe get to important conversations that haven't been happening, you know, because of the distrust in the in you know that communities of color have with the healthcare system. So thank you both for the, the work that you're doing. 
Um, you know, Jamila, I'd like to turn a little bit to talk about TRAP uh, Medical, which is an incredible program, and I would love for you to be able to share a little bit about it. It is a true community-based program, you know, that's designed to provide health education services and, and really address the inequities of healthcare. So if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about it and, and maybe, you know, how how it came to be and, and why you chose Barber Shops. Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, TRAP Medicine, um, it's it's an acronym. Uh, TRAP is um, an acronym for TRUST research, access, and prevention. Uh, and it's a play on um, trap music, and uh, it's a very popular uh, music genre, a uh, hip-hop genre that that uh, that really resonates with a lot of young young men, older men, um, and just uh, people in general, I think. Um, so we wanted to, to, to create a provocative name in order to get people to ask, well, what is it that you guys do, <laughs> right? And so... Um, Trap medicine is really about trying to address uh, health disparities among black men and boys um, using barbershops. Uh, it's based on a model that has been used um, since as early as the 1970s, I believe, um, where uh, medical professionals go into barbershops and screen uh, African-American men for everything from hypertension to depression, HIV. Uh, so we wanted to take that model and try to systematize it. And so what we're what we've been doing is really trying to um, build the capacity of barbershops to be spaces where men can have these conversations around mental health, around chronic uh, chronic illness, um, around how you navigate the healthcare system, um, healthy relationships, uh, getting tested, how you talk to your partner about um, condoms and stuff, all, everything um, under the sun we talk about. And uh, it, it then morphed into uh, a model where we partner up with universities as well as primary care clinics uh, to be able to provide free screenings uh, for men. Uh, so we, we, we screen men for HIV and STIs, um, hypertension, high blood pressure, um, and high blood sugar. Uh, and then we also partner with universities with um, to do research studies. And so we just actually completed a study where we looked at like the, the mental health, the impact of, of COVID-19 on the mental health of, of Black and Asian adults um, and how we, and we did that through like a virtual um uh, sort of support space, support group. Uh, and we, we actually mixed together um, Black and Asian adults and had them talk about like the experiences of discrimination during this time and what that what impact that has had on their mental health. And so what we're trying to do is basically become a comprehensive uh, public health uh, company that really tries to focus specifically on the experiences of, my, of, of, of Black and Brown men and boys um, and and do that in a space such as the barbershop that where men feel most comfortable to share and also are receptive to receive information. Um, what we're doing right now is we're working with Charles Drew University on um, a vaccine education and distribution initiative where we'll be partnering with barbershops here in South Los Angeles um, to educate barbers about the vaccine and educate clients about the vaccine, but then also to give people access to it as it begins to be rolled out to the general public. Uh, and we think that the, there's a safe space in order to, to do that. Um, you need a safe space to do that because of the reluctance that, that widespread reluctance to get the vaccine. And I think that there's so much misinformation out there that we have to address, but also concerns, valid concerns around the vaccine that people want and have questions about and that we can um, accurately address in an intimate setting, such as the barbershop. And we find that the barbershops are the most appropriate setting for these types of conversations because uh, the trust is already there. We, Jasmine talked about that a little bit earlier uh, about the, the importance of building relationships. And what we're doing is just leveraging the relationships that the barbers already have 
with their clients um, and just bringing, you know, some information and resources so that people can have those things at their fingertips. Uh, ultimately, what we like to do is to become a network of barbershop clinics where men can have access um, uh, to um, a health provider, have access to a nutritionist, a therapist, while also getting a haircut. And that's something that, um, you know, when, when I first started, I actually had like three pieces of paper on my wall that really um, kind of outlined, you know, what I felt trap medicine should be. And it actually has it uh, actually has manifested into what was on those three pieces of paper. And so what we what initially I thought was, you know, how do we build a system, a healthcare system for a population that is not currently engaged in the healthcare system, right? And and part of that is um, thinking about like what is what are the barriers um, and what are the things that are causing people not to engage in the healthcare system, such as the mistreatment um, in the clinic, uh, such as lack of health insurance. Uh, not having access to a job. And so those are the, the social determinants of health that we talk about. And so our model is really sort of morphing into something that is really trying to address the social determinants and hoping that the social determinants will then help by addressing those social determinants, we can improve people's um, health outcomes. And so we're really focused on trying to be innovative and also try to work specifically with communities and not just come in with our own agenda. And so we always come in and ask the barbers, like, what, are, what will be most uh, resonant with your clients? You know, it's it, if we're, every barbershop is different, right? You have some barbershops that only serve older men. And so maybe we just talk about, you know, prostate cancer and what screenings you should be getting as a, as a man that is, um, you know, over 40 years old, uh, I could say uh, <clears throat> a barbershop that focuses more on young men. We look, we talk about, um, you know, what are the, what are the experiences that young men are having right now and how can we come in and support? And so that might look like, you know, us talking about um, how do you navigate, you know, being in, being a young man right now uh, in, in society and, and what impact does that have on your mental health? And we talk about, you know, trauma and how to cope with trauma and how to like use yoga and meditation to, to move through, and help as, as a coping strategy. And so there's a lot of different strategies that we've been able to pull from and just based on whatever population we're serving. And I really like that because we want to be as an intergenerational model um, and try to focus not just on one population, but really think about the, the interconnections between generations and try to use that as, and leverage that as, as, cap, as social capital uh, to address health, health disparities. That is awesome. My uh, my grandfather was a barber until he was 95 years old. And every everybody I interact with say, oh, your grandfather's my therapist. Your grandfather is like, is always checking in on me <laughs> and telling me what to do. So that's, that's, I love, I love that. I love that. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, it was, it was the experience with my own barber that was really, that really sort of lit the match. Uh, I'll tell a short story. We were in the barbershop and there were these young men, having uh, conversations about like sex and sexual health. And my barber, who at the time was Mr. Harold in Berkeley, uh, shout out to Mr. Harold. He's probably maybe watching this or not, I don't know, but uh, he just demonstrated how to, with a, with a latex glove, how to create a dental dam um, and what that, what, what protective um, barrier methods are in order for, uh, you know, men to safely engage in sex. And so obviously like, his lesson that he gave at the time needed some refining. I saw it as an opportunity to like really think about like what, how can we use barbershop barbers uh, strategically to be able to educate their own clients about these issues. And so it was that experience that really was, was the, um, what catapulted trap medicine. 
Right, because you have the the trust there because, you know, no one, you know, they trust somebody with your hairline, number one. But number two, you also have a captive audience because they can't go anywhere while while you're delivering uh, that, that information. So, no, it's, it's awesome. I, I love it. You know, Jamil, we're, we're currently talking at Health Corps right now about what are the, the ways that we can work with the community to share, you know, like as you were talking about information about the vaccine um, and then on the ground, finding those trusted partnerships, those trusted relationships for our coordinators to help work with community members to really share the truth, right? And to combat some of those um, myths that are out there and some of the miscommunication and misinformation. And, and but like you said, there's a lot of really valid questions and making sure that we have real answers to those questions and, and being honest with what is, you know, the, the positives that we know and, and what we don't know, right? Because that's also a piece of the conversation, not not um, at Health Corps, it's not our job to to tell you what to do. It's our job to help educate you. And then, of course, it's up to every individual to decide how they move forward. Um, so I love that that's something that you're working on, too. And I think we may be reaching out to you to see if we can get some of those materials from the TRAP group and, and how we might be able to to utilize them in our in our work as well. Well, I just want to say thank you both very much for joining us today and, and sharing your stories and, and really being honest and opening up about what your life experience has been and what it's like to be a Black doctor. Um, and, and thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's so imperative um, to the health of our country, our nation, and the health of our Black populations to get more Black doctors out there um, and, and making a difference. So so thank you both so much. Um, I'm personally very inspired uh, by both of you and, and very humbled and, and honored to be speaking with you. Jamil, congratulations again on your great accomplishment getting the Diversity of Medicine Award and, and all the work that you're going to do. And Jasmine as well, I can't wait to continue to see the work that you do and, and hear more about the libraries that you create in, this, in the pediatric clinics. And I can just know that both of you are going to continue making great change. And, and I'm personally very excited to see it. So I hope everybody enjoyed this episode of Healthy Chats. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Um, we're found on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you guys. Thank you.